Today's episode, we're going to start with something exciting for all our listeners because we love you. And every now and then you deserve a little NCR, aka non-contingent reinforcement because you guys have been listening and you don't need an ad. So today, let's get right to the topic. It's behavior bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey and we're back and it is episode 28. Casey, what do you have for us? Well, our lovely listener Tanera sent us um, two eight. Give us a rating uh, of five Get stars it? on all platforms, <laughs> preferably on the podcast app Apple. Twenty eight. So, yeah. Give us a rating of five stars, please. Get to that right now. Low response effort. Put five stars. Send us love. We love it. Then we have reviews to read at the beginning of the show. Speaking of that, perfect. yeah, that leads us right into it. It's crazy how we do that after <laughs> 28 episodes. All right. Today's uh, response. No, that's not the word. Um, review. Guys, just so you know, we're recording this podcast um, early in the morning. Our guest is um, a badass from California who is on Pacific Standard Time and actually enjoys a 7 a.m. podcast. Liat and I are at 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. and we're still like, can't open our eyes, can't get words out. So bear with us today. We're going to we're gonna get in the groove of it. But first, let's do the review. This comes from Cass Collins. This was a um, Instagram, correct, Liat? Yes, this is correct, Casey. Thank you. All right. She says, I really, 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 three reallys, wow, enjoyed the imposter podcast. I absolutely love Casey's dorky personality. <laughs> Okay. Dude, I told you. I told you. You're not <laughs> as cool as you think. I know. I am the same way, so I get her humor. Liat, I really love the part where you said that you have no problem admitting when you don't know questions. Um, in the past, I've asked questions and sometimes have received the wrong answer, just so that person didn't feel dumb. You guys are both hilarious. Um, you guys have also helped me with being able to understand behavioral terms as they should be understood in real life scenarios. You guys really need to have a speaking event. I would love to meet you guys. Keep it up. Please keep the podcast coming. Well, we are going to try our best to get one out every week. And our Patreon supporters are helping us do that by donating money each month. We appreciate you guys all so very much. So, so, so much. Which also is a reminder that we need to pick up our Patreon level adding more stuff to it all the time. We're, We're on aware it. Of We're this, guys, and we so, so, so much. You can always find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast. Find us on Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast. And yeah, go to our website, behaviorbitches.com. Or is it behaviorbitchespodcast.com? Probably that one. We got our shit together, guys. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Anyways, <laughs> sure. um, I'm really excited for today's episode. Um, I want to get right into it. You know, um, we are talking today about severe challenging behavior um, and how to really determine the function of behavior. And the guest today, she is, so she reached out to us via email um, a while ago, actually. Um, she was like, I'm a BCBA. I work with really challenging behavior. And she wrote this beautiful email um, and asked if we would be interested in doing an episode on this topic. Like five ever ago, she reached out to us in the, in the beginning. And I like that. Yeah, she was like, she came right into our kitchen sink. Is that a is that a saying? Came uh, into yellow, our kitchen go sink. With it. Yeah, it's cool. I think it's everything but the kitchen sink. <laughs> it's fine. But like, whatever. There I am being a dork. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right, so we scheduled a phone call with her. Um, the rest is history. We instantly connected with her and we love her. Um, she is super passionate about the dignity of her clients and she works tirelessly to find the function of their challenging behavior. Um, and most people shy away from this type of behavior. Um, the best part about her, she reads Java. That's the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. That is where all the evidence-based research that we all should be implementing in our practice is found. Um, she is a BCBA. You sound like Caddy saying that. You're like, that is what we all should be doing. <laughs> I'm just trying to hold us to integrity, you know? Hold I like us that to a higher I, integrity. I love that about you. I love that about you. Yeah. Um, so she is a BCBA. She works for um, Terry Incorporated in Oceanside, California. Um, she mainly works across two non-public schools and one community-based adult day program. Most of her cases are referred due to high levels of severe problem behavior and significant need for behavior intervention. Um, she listened to the episode with Brad Bishop. She said she's obsessed with the psych core guys, which so are we. We love them both, Ryan and Brad. And her ability to pass the exam was in big part due to them. We agree with you, girlfriend. 
Um, so our guest, she went to Augsburg University in Minneapolis, with, um, got her bachelor's in secondary education and history, received her teaching credential as a social studies teacher. That's awesome. Um, she went to Arizona State University for grad school, where she got her master's in education, um, in curriculum and instruction, and ABA. She passed her board exam in May 2019, so she's a pretty new BCBA who's out there doing the good work. She also has a wicked badass Instagram where she breaks down journal articles in a way that people can understand. So if you want to expand your mind and learn, go follow her at alwaysforward underscore ABA. When she isn't saving the world one challenging behavior at a time, you can find her playing soccer, hiking, at the beach, listening to music, drinking gallons of coffee, bicycling, self-caring AF, and weekend trips in California. Welcome to the show, Catherine Gorgas. Is that how I pronounced it? Yeah. Yes, that was pretty good, Gorgas. Yes. Thank you for that say, amazing you spelled it wrong. I was going to say you spelled <laughs> it wrong on here. I know. It looks a little backwards, but it's German. We had an umlaut in Germany, so that was the whole... It's an umlau. It's like the two dots over the O. Oh. So no, when my dad came to this country, it changed to an E. Oh, wonderful. I, I love that. hearing what people's family's <laughs> original name was. It's like, yeah, mine was Saxaholic, tra la blah, 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 You know, and it's like, oh, but now I'm just Liat Sax. Made it easier. Yeah, shortened it up a little bit. <laughs> well, thank nice. you for that introduction. That was so nice. Did we miss well, anything amazing about you? No, that really covered a lot of it. It was, it was really, really made me feel really good. I like to pretend I'm like the third behavior bitch out here a lot of times. So it's really you an honor are. to be here. <laughs> You We're are welcome. We're <laughs> honored member for life. Okay. I love it. Because you're doing the good work. So um today's behavioral talk. principles. Do you mind if I get to those? Yeah. I don't mind at all. Yeah. Okay. Behavioral principles that we're gonna cover. Behavioral principles, FBAs. Well, we're gonna talk about functional behavioral assessments, functional analyses. We're gonna talk about behavior support plans. Obviously, we're gonna talk about reinforcement and punishment because would it be applied behavior analysis if we weren't talking about those? Um, I'm sure we'll talk about extinction too. Just added that in right now. We're going to talk about functional communication training. Probably some MOs up in here and multiple function maintained behaviors. And I'm sure we'll have more, but that's a nice start for you to get you hot and bothered and excited for this episode. So without further ado, Casey, let's go. So Catherine, I want to start off. Can you just give us a little background on um, what you do? Like, I know I covered that where you work, but like, tell the people what you do every day. Yes. So I am a board certified behavior analyst, as you mentioned, and I work um, for three different day programs within a non-profit uh, agency. So um, that includes non-public schools, which essentially just means that districts can refer students to us. Um, and that's also one adult day program, which is community-based. Also, uh, the regional center in California refers clients to us if individuals cannot um, or haven't been able to demonstrate success in a sort of typical adult day program with a one to three ratio. We have an enhanced staffing ratio. So Are you one to one? Um, in the non-public schools, there are um, like one of the non-public schools is all one to one. The other one is a mix of one to one, one to three, one to nine. Um, and then the adult day program is two to three. So it's enhanced all around. Um, from there, I do a lot of functional behavior assessments, obviously. Right. And um, and behavior intervention plans. But I also get to really do a lot of um, staff training. I get to work with certified special ed teachers. We do like clinics every two weeks with the special ed teachers where they get to talk with me about their entire caseload of students. And we just kind of run through any behavioral troubleshooting that needs to happen. Um, I kind of oversee our assaultive behavior safety training. I have behavior specialists in each of my departments that also oversee that training and they are trainers for, you know, any kind of restraint or containment that we train for our agency. Um, so we have to really consider all the ethics and the um, educational codes and state laws and things like that, obviously. Um, so there's a lot that goes into it. Sometimes it's just consulting, you know, I go to meetings, I go to IEPs, I consult with directors and all kinds of people. So there's a lot of different roles I get to play. Well, they are lucky to have you. And it's I so also love, I love it. how you talk with your hands. I know, it's right? Like we do. 
<laughs> so you are the third behavior bitch. Welcome. Yes. I love it. <laughs> um, so I know when we talked on the phone, we talked a lot about, um, like different types of challenging behavior that you've seen and what do you think? And again, respecting all dignity of the clients and, you know, no, um, violations here, but what are some of the hardest or most trickiest challenging behaviors that you have maybe come into contact with? Um, you know, for me, the most difficult ones are behaviors that have sort of been functionally misdiagnosed, right? So you see a behavior and topographically, it looks like rituals, but then you do a functional analysis and it turns out it's maintained by attention or it turns out it's maintained by, you know, somebody like physically blocking that kind of thing. And so topographically, it looks like some other kind of function, but it's actually maintained by something else. So that could include any kind of weird behavior, right? It could be self-injury, really extreme self-injury. It could be fecal smearing. It could be, you know, I've seen a lot of nudity, (laughs) things like that. And I think talking about these kind of odd and extreme behaviors, it's not to really sensationalize them. It's to really bring light to the fact that a lot of people, families, um, individuals are out there dealing with this. And I want to make that kind of clear, like, this is not to say, hey, these behaviors are weird. Let's, let's laugh about it. It's really to say, you know, a lot of these individuals are not, are, are kind of kept behind closed doors. And we should really be including them in our conversations about inclusion, about quality of life, about dignity, about behavioral treatment. I totally agree with that. And I think another thing, um, aside from just sometimes we see a behavior and topographically, you're like, oh, look, they're doing pretty quote unquote typical signs that it's for attention. They're looking at me right after, right? And smiling or something. And so you think it's attention or you get a new client and they've already been, uh, you're already give, given the client with the said function, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why it's really important for us to practice philosophical doubt or a healthy skepticism, right? And say, let me go in and look at this again with a new set of eyes, do a functional analysis and see, is this really what's maintaining the behavior? Yes, exactly. Philosophical doubt is like one of my favorite concepts. Like it's just, it's something that drives me, I think in life, um, not just my practice as a behavior analyst, but when when you're dealing with kids who, whose problem behavior is so extreme, somebody in that kid's life is in crisis, whether it's the kid themselves or the family member who's maybe afraid of their child's behavior or, um, you know, the school teacher who is just like at their wit's end, doesn't know how to serve this individual. And I think that practice of philosophical doubt of always saying, hmm, how could we look at this with a different angle? Are we sure that we got this right? Let's try, let's try this. Let's look at the data. Let's make sure, you know, I think that is so important in terms of treating Uh, the population of kids with really extreme behavior. And I think that a lot of people, um, again, like I had mentioned in the beginning, when there are these extreme challenging behaviors, it's scary. And people um, don't want to really take another second look at it because they're scared. And, and that's no fault to anyone. But the, the point here that I know you're trying to make is that these are the ones that need the help the most and need to be understood, right? Um, I'm reeling on this. I went to the Greg Hanley workshop yesterday, guys. Wow. So exciting. Mind blown. I've learned so much. And it was perfect timing for this podcast because I know we were talking about functional communication training, functional analysis, um, all those things. And what he said, he said, um, these these, uh, clients are the ones that have a fire inside right? They have a fire. And those are the ones that we need to figure out what their fire is. What is their motivation? Oh, true. Right? Yes. It's so true. I see like doing sort of classroom observations and school observations. You, you see this like perception that a student who's engaged in severe problem behavior, um, is unable to learn, right? There's this idea that somehow, behaviors like so behaviors impede learning in the typical sense right that's sort of how we classify them like oh it's socially significant it's impeding learning but that does not mean that somebody is unable to learn and when you watch and observe somebody engaging in severe problem behavior it's clear that they've been learning a lot of different contingencies right they've learned exactly how to get what they want through their problem behavior and it really like I stand and watch kids and I'm like 
they are watching everyone else's behavior, shaping the behavior of those around them, and really finding the best way to meet their own needs. And I, I give so much respect to them. I'm like, these are little junior behavior analysts out there sometimes, <laughs> like watching everybody's behavior and really, you know, making sure that they get their needs met. But that does, you know, problem behavior does not mean someone cannot learn. I think we get so caught up in like, oh, they're just engaged in behavior all day. There's no time to teach. It's like, you're, you shouldn't worry about, you know, the you shouldn't feel like problem behavior prevents you from running a program. The program should be run to deal with the problem behavior. You know, it should be shaped around that behavior. Absolutely. Those teachable moments. And you posted something on Instagram. If they can't learn the way we teach, we teach the way they learn. Guys, Absolutely. it's up to us to change the way we teach, right? Exactly. I have a mentor who comes and um, discusses, you know, he comes every two weeks and consults with us at Terry. And something he says is like, let's say that you have a kid who's coming in the door and they're engaging in problem behavior, like whatever it may be, maybe they're engaging in self-injury every time they walk through the doorway of the school. And there's this sense of like, oh, we can't get them in the school to teach and get them to learn. The learning should be happening right there where the problem behavior is happening. You should bring your learning to wherever problem behavior is happening. If problem behavior is happening in the bathroom, that's where you bring your your program, right? That's where you're doing your teaching because that's I where love the kids that. do it. Yeah, it was amazing. That's like, I have so many mentors. I want to give credit, you know, that this is not just me coming up with all this, right? This is like so many of our teachers and mentors who have shaped us and, and things like that to think of these things. Who's your, who's your mentors you want to give a shout out to? So Dr. Paul Dorries is our psychologist that and BCBAD who comes and consults. And then uh, Dr. Christy Dezonia, who is our, like, she's kind of, She's one of the co-founders of our agency. She is also a BCBAD and she was my supervising BCBA. So I did all of my supervision within this context of problem behavior. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful for that. So Greg Hanley actually said, and following right along with you, um, is that um, when he's conducting um, the ISCA and the, using, you know, his uh, practical functional assessment, it's called an open door analysis, meaning you follow the client where they go. Like if they don't want to be in the room that you're conducting it in, you're not going to be able to conduct it. Right. So that if they get tells up, you something. Yeah, exactly. You follow the learner where they, if in the, he even said that if they go in the woman's bathroom, you follow them in there and see what is it, what, you know, you're going to conduct it where they want to be, or you're not going to be able to conduct it correctly. Um, or with, you know, any validity. So yeah, I love that following yeah. them where they need to go, where they go. Casey, tell me your three top takeaways yesterday. Ooh, yes. I'm so interested. Oh, well, Casey, let me just... Casey's the CEU goer for the behavior bitches. Sometimes she uses my CEU number, sometimes hers. No, I'm just kidding, everyone. <laughs> no, Calm do down. I'm joking. Calm down. You could see she has I, like 500 CEUs. I, have, I think I have 64 now, and it hasn't even been a year. I wish they would yes. roll on over, but guess what? I'll always keep going. Um, so the three takeaways I would say, um, which I love, is that... Um, he says that, hold on, I got to find this in my notebook because I want to get it right, okay? Love that about you, Case. I know, I know that's the, the biggest thing. But first of all, basically, he talks about a lot about how behaviors are not like, um, the functions of behaviors are not isolated, right? It's not usually just attention. Oh, yes, perfect. It's just attention that's maintaining this. Behaviors are multiply maintained in most cases. And a lot of his research says that. And we'll post some stuff in our show notes, um, journal articles that he has written in Java that talk about the synthesized um, functional analysis, right? So it's a combination of, of um, functions maintaining a behavior. So it could be access to tangibles, right? That's one function. Attention, right? Um, sensory, so automatic and escape. And usually it's a kind of like a package of all those different things that are maintaining the behavior. But the biggest thing that made me crack up that he said, basically, do tell, do I, tell. Oh, why do kids engage in problem behavior? Okay. This is his question to get shit. They want to get out of shit. They don't want to do, do it with people. They give a shit about and do and get someone to do some shit for them. Right. So these are the <laughs> reasons. And I Does love he the way he did. Yeah, he did. He's funny. Oh my um, God, he broke it down. Him on here. I love him. But he was, you know, it's seriously, it's like simple, right? It's really mm -hmm. actually not that um, crazy. It's like when people engage in these problem behaviors, and he also talked about how when 
like, especially like self-injurious behaviors, right? If they're, we were like, oh my God, what? Like, I can't believe they do that to themselves. He goes, this is something that mammals do. This isn't autism, right? Mm-hmm. When mammals are frustrated or something, they scratch or they, you know, uh, bite themselves or something like that. That's a mammal behavior, right? So it's not that wow. it's just the autism. I know. I, I was like, yeah, I have a yeah, notebook full of stuff over here. Um, but the takeaway big is that there's multiple things maintaining a behavior. There's multiple consequences maintaining a behavior. And the, the okay, so I want to get this right. There, a response could topographically look different, right? So there could be a bunch of different problem behaviors. It could be hitting, kicking, biting, right? And mostly they're maintained by a set of reinforcement contingencies, right? So it could all be for the same function. So when you're doing an uh, analysis and you find all these different co-occurring behaviors, right? It's usually for the same function. So if you can treat Mm. it at the first instance of that, maybe the precursor is they start uh, moving their body right? Before they get to the high levels of aggression. But if you catch that behavior, you don't have to see those high levels of aggression because you're giving them what they want at the first instance of problem behavior, right? You're reinforcing that problem behavior essentially because you don't want to escalate. Even better if you could see precursors. Yes. Then then you're like, let me get this before. I always say like really extreme behaviors. If you could catch it in the antecedent, like, or like, like right before it's like, Especially when it's someone, you know, when you're working with really big clients or really aggressive Mm. or I'm like, okay, so at this point, you know, I don't know if it would be the best to try, see, you know, what exactly is or like allow them to get to that point to work using, you know, like punishment or extinction because it's, you know, I know like if there's going to be a battle between me and someone who's 250 pounds, like they're going to win. And a lot totally. of these people we work with are strong, you know, when they're yeah, like really strong. It's interesting because a lot of it, like, like you work with adults, you know, Casey and I, and I've worked with adults or bigger students, you know, kids too. And you can't always use escape extinction, right? Escape extinction requires some level of physical prompting or, or any, even with attention, like it's really hard to put attention, maintain behavior on extinction. Especially if, when you're in the community. Yeah. I was going to say exactly. Like, <laughs> If you scream or do something odd in the community, people are going to look. We can't control that. And so this effort to put everything on extinction is not always the answer. And what we end up doing is putting it on a very long intermittent reinforcement schedule, right? Which then makes it worse. It leads to more (laughs) severe behavior. You know, and it's, and another thing that I, like I follow a lot of um, Dr. Hanley's stuff and I know there's like, it's a really interesting debate sort of in the field about synthesized contingencies versus standard isolated isolated conditions within a functional analysis. And the cool thing about that whole debate is that it's so good for our science, right? Like think like philosophical doubt, questioning the way we've always done things is so good for our science. And for us as behavior analysts to just go out there and try it both ways, but to ultimate, for me, it's about ultimately landing on individualized functional functional analyses because you really have to identify the specific antecedents and the specific consequences that are maintaining that individual's behavior. And yeah, if you, and I, the thing I love about the precursor conversation is that he argues, he uses that as a, an argument to say, behavior analysts, go do functional analyses. Don't be afraid of doing functional analyses on problem behavior, because if you've done a good job of identifying your precursor behaviors, you can reinforce at lower levels and you won't ever have to see that really extreme, dangerous behavior. So, um, you know, he, there's that article, we'll, we'll have to, I'll send it to you guys and we'll have to put it in the show notes where he, he writes for perspective with perspectives, which is the journal of ABAI. And, um, I think you're so cool. I'm sorry. You You need some reinforcement in here. No, seriously. I just, I just want to give you some, uh, some reinforcement and a compliment while I'm listening to you. Like, of course, this (laughs) is what people in the field need to see that there are young behavior analysts. I mean, I'm a new behavior analyst too. I became one what yeah. two years ago, but I'm you about are to come up on my year, right? And yes. you freshly minted in to see. I think it's really important that people in the field see, like, it's not only these people who have been BCBAs forever, or that are able to have this love and understand and keep learning and realize that 
what you studied for the test, because yeah, when you study for the test, you talk about, okay, a behavior that's reinforced, you're going to put it on extinction, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also further application, like in, for individual situations that maybe it's not the best to just have to allow the behavior to fully take place for you to put it on extinction, right? And this is obviously further learning and you need to know different things when you're taking a test as to what actually you're going to apply, I would say, you know, um, and so I just think it's so awesome and you sound like so well-rounded in the field and I'm just idolizing you because I'm looking in your background and it looks like you have a very zen area that you sit in over there. Is that all <laughs> essential oils? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I got my salt lamp over there. And <laughs> I love wait, it. Where, I have, wait, I got to show you. I know no one can see this, but I, I love salt it. lamp oh, too. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, you know, it's about structuring our own environments for the yes, behavior we want, right? We got to structure our own Zen environments to evoke. Got to manipulate those variables, <laughs> set up the environment for success. Um, yes, and at the exactly. end of the day, it's all about the client. It's client yeah. versus. It doesn't matter what arguments are going on about what type of functional analysis or this or that. It's so true. We need to treat these problem behaviors because our clients are what matter. And safety is the most important thing when we are dealing with our clients. We want to keep them safe, right? So yeah. Um, and there was an article that you had dissected, um, and I want and I wanted to see if you mm -hmm. want to talk about it a little bit, but sure. it was about how, um, I think it was, I have it in here. It was reducing problem behaviors through functional communication training by Karin Durant in the yeah. journal of applied behavior analysis. Um, what are your takeaways from that? Like the importance of functional communication training. Can you talk a bit about that? Also, yeah. can you say what functional communication training is for anyone oh, listening oh. who doesn't even, um, know what it is, just say what it is. <laughs> So functional communication training, and especially in that article in 1985, Karin Duran, that's when they really started to define it. And they basically were at a place in behavior analysis where punishment was being used to reduce problem behavior. We know that punishment reduces behavior, right? And that was one of the main things that was being used. And they came along and did this study where they taught functionally equivalent replacement responses, right? So um, they did a functional analysis. They were able to determine that two of the students were, their problem behavior was maintained by escape from difficult tasks. And one of the students' problem behavior was maintained by the teacher's attention. And so they taught two different responses. And um, one of the responses was, I don't understand, I think was the, the functionally equivalent response for the escape maintained behavior. And then the other one for attention was, um, how am I doing good work, right? And that garnered the teacher to come over and say, wow, look at this amazing job you're doing. And the cool thing about that article is they isolated the fact that it was the functionally equivalent behavior that reduced problem behavior. So the kids whose behavior was maintained by escape, teaching them to say, am I doing good work, did not reduce behavior because that one get, got attention. It didn't get them escape from a difficult task. And so in you know, to kind of look at the big picture and what, what I'm doing and what we're doing in terms of problem behavior, you know, functional communication training is something that's now used by a ton, by everybody, right? It's so common. Um, you know, even in IEPs, you have to, you have to identify a functionally equivalent replacement behavior and target that in an IEP. We call it the FERB, you know, and the important thing about that for me and what I've, what I've found and learned through, through all my mentors is if you, if you like, let's say you identify that, um, problem behavior is maintained by escape. So you teach the kid to say break and you reinforce break on a first and then every time they say break, you reinforce that by taking away their work or whatever it is. The, the biggest thing is you have to make sure that whatever that response that you're teaching has the same effect on the environment that the problem behavior. So I think in my Instagram like talk, I said, you know, if somebody engages in problem behavior and that clears the entire classroom, you know, everybody leaves and they're now left alone in a room and then you teach them to say break and all you do is take away the work. That's not a, that's not having the same effect on the environment and you won't really see a reduction in behavior and you, you can do trial and error. Right. And that's what we do. We, we, we have hypotheses, we test them, we apply an intervention. If it doesn't reduce behavior, then we know we're missing something about that functional equivalent. Mm -hmm. It's so important to determine the function because again, if you're just throwing the, uh, kitchen sink at these problems yes. 
and not conducting conducting um you know a functional analysis a functional behavior assessment to really determine the function then you're you're actually probably doing more harm than anything yeah you see it all the time like you know people just especially with kids with autism it's like give them a weighted vest and give them headphones and give them this or that you know and which is all fine if that's what the kid is really into but if that's just your response to problem behavior, you're now adding things to the environment that are difficult to fade. Um, you know, so I really like Dr. Hanley's work in, I think it was his 2014 article where he really went through his ISCA process and presented that. But in that article, he presents a treatment, which is really functional communication training. But he really, really focuses on the functional piece of it. Like he teaches kids to just say, my way. Right. Yeah. And that gets yeah. them everything that they want. And that mm -hmm. ensures that you really are make you're really having the same effect on the environment when you say my way as when you engage in problem behavior, because when problem behavior happens, a lot of people are like, oh, give them their way. We don't want them to they, we don't want them to blow. Right. So mm -hmm. we just give them everything. Yeah. So he does that same. He teaches that same um he teaches a response my way in order for that person to access all of that reinforcement. Yep. And That's it's our job as behavior analysts to, when they do engage in that functionally, um, what's that? Equivalent. Thank you. Equivalent. Yeah. <laughs> Blaine fart. Um, the functionally equivalent behavior that's appropriate, like, yeah. right? So saying my way or saying break instead of mm -hmm. hitting themselves in the head a hundred times, you need to reinforce that immediately. The immediacy of reinforcement is so important, right? Because so if you important. don't, then guess what? Then they're like, well, then this isn't working, right? This my way isn't working if I'm not getting exactly. what I want. Yeah. It has to be more efficient, more effective um, than the problem behavior. And the problem behavior has to become, you know, irrelevant. And I mean, sometimes we can't put the problem behavior on extinction, right? So instead we can use matching law, right? If if we reinforce the appropriate behavior on a richer schedule than the problem behavior is getting reinforced, then we should at least see a tip of the scales. Um, and something else I really you know, Dr. Hanley's description of delay and denial training, we've been using it a lot, um, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of other literature out there about it, but we've been using it a lot in that, you know, you reinforce on a continuous schedule when you teach a functional communicative response, right? So you, every time a kid says break, you reinforce, but eventually, you know, you have to fade in some delay and you can do that in so many ways. He has them asking longer questions, excuse me, may I please have a break or whatever it may Calls be. Them complex, uh, complex yes. communication training. Exactly. Yeah. It's so good. And I mean, we do, we do a lot, um, you know, break, please. Um, you know, hold on, let me see if the area is available. And, you know, we, we kind of like delay that way. Um, and so we're doing a lot of that in, with my kiddos and adults that I work with. And I love that. It's huge. It's so important. Teaching people to tolerate minor aversives is so important. You I know what? Because life is hard. Yeah. Life is hard for everyone. And life you're not comes up with aversives. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, another great person that I kind of follow is Dr. Merrill Winston. And he, oh, he, I love him. he talks about restraint and seclusion in really um, such a beneficial way. And he has, I found this random like presentation that he did. It's called Way Beyond Functional Analysis. But he gets to some of these same points is that instead of just stopping at, hey, the, the behavior is maintained by escape, we should say, well, why are they, you know, why are they engaging in problem behavior to escape tasks? Well, why are they trying to escape tasks? Because they never learned to tolerate minor aversives, right? And then we can deal with some of those underlying issues, not just the symptom of um, that, that initial problem behavior, right? Yeah, and I think what you're talking about, what, you know, before I got into ABA, I, w I just had my master's in special ed, not just because <laughs> I thought I was a badass and I was, Absolutely. Um, but, um, I know I accidentally, I think Casey and I both have like just used just before and we're like, that is not a just, it's not just a RBT. They do everything, you Heck know? Yes, um, it's hard um, work. So, um, but like, I remember being a special ed teacher, right? And by the way, before I got into ABA, I was like, oh, it's going to be so easy for me, ABA, because my behavior, my program was so behavior based. I didn't realize mm. how much more there was to learn. But um, like when you're writing an IEP or something for a student, they give you like a checklist of things to check off. Like, what are you doing? Okay, this kid has this extreme behavior. So we're just going to, we're going to sit them closer to the board. We're going to shorten the amount of problems they have on their math assignment. We're going to 
offer them breaks. We're going to um, put a visual on their desk. And it's like just these generic things that you're putting on there. You're just check, 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 checking off as yeah. you go through like this, you know, as you check through on the IEP. And interventions. Yeah. Right. But it's like, you're putting these things. They're not even figuring out the function of why someone's doing it. So it's like, if the problem for this kid is not that there's 300 math problems, I mean, that'd probably be a problem for anyone. So that's not a great example, but, and then you're like, like this person just wanted attention and you're just shortening the assignment for them. Right. And so you're just giving, you know, these other accommodations that essentially aren't even serving as accommodations because it's not based on the function. So it's just so important that we match whatever antecedent interventions we're doing or consequent interventions that we're doing to match the actual function. And I just think that's so, so, so important. Well, and I'm sure Casey, you've seen this with your adults is a lot of times what happens is kids go through school and those, those antecedent interventions are put in place, which is great when you're trying to initially reduce a problem behavior, but eventually you have to teach somebody to tolerate day-to-day minor aversives. You can't just remove all um, demand or reduce all demand forever and ever because those kids become adults. And now when somebody in an adult program, which by the way, has a lot less support and a lot less services, um, you know, has to say, excuse me, please wait. I have three other clients. And that kid blows because they've never learned to wait. They've never learned to tolerate the minor aversive of waiting you know, now you've got a 200 pound individual engaging in severe problem behavior. And that, and it's, it's really, I mean, we see it all the time. It's and they're really saying my way. Thing. Yeah. Like, let's just, and they're like, just, no, 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 this line, no one cuts. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> first and then please like what's going on. You know, it's, um, it's a huge, it's a huge issue. The transition piece of it is so, so, so important. We've been really you know, it's hard because you really get caught up in just making the world easier and more manageable because we love our kiddos and our people that we serve so much. We want to just make everything easy on them, which is really great in order to get that initial compliance or to build that relationship or to pair. But then we have to start fading in, um, you know, regular life things systematically teaching for generalization and maintenance, because in an adult program, you know, California, we're, we're kind of lucky because we have guaranteed adult services through the lifespan, right? This is like not common, but it does mean that our individuals, when they become adults, um, they get they get referred by the regional center to different settings. And if that individual has severe problem behavior, they will typically either be exited quickly or they won't be allowed in at all. And they're so limited programs for um adults with severe behaviors, not to mention that a lot of those programs don't have BCBA access, don't have speech and language pathology access, you know, it kills um, me. It really does. So hard. Cause my brother is 22 and I'm just like, it's that you know, age, one of these yeah. places that looked at as like the best in the community. And I'm not saying names of anything, but it's just like, I know that they're going there and it's just like a holding place for these adults to be during the day, it's like, okay, we're going to make beds for two hours, or we're going right. to all watch a movie every day, or we're going on an outing here. But it's like, are you actually working on skills when you're doing those things? And and I find that a lot with adults. And it because, like, I mean, I have a really personal connection with it. It breaks my heart because I'm like, dude, he's 22, but he could still learn, you know? Absolutely. And Learning never ends. Never. And I know that I, what I see a lot is the prompt dependency, right? So for their entire lives, they've been prompted, 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 told what to do, given a choice between this and this, like, and then they're still waiting for, like, they still can't make decisions because we've always made the decisions for them. Mm. And you know what? Give them a chance. Like maybe it takes a little bit longer for them to make a decision and that's okay. And I know it might not feel natural as us because we, no one likes silence or, or, you know, the way our world is now, it's like immediate, immediate, immediate. But like, Allow Amazon, that. Amazon, Amazon. Right. I was so oh pissed. The other day I had to wait two days for something. I'm like, are you kidding? I really need that new set of pens. Are you joking me? Yeah, but like, so giving that like almost uh, un- I'm like, my way. <laughs> uh, the uncomfortable silence of like giving them time to process and not um, making all the decisions for them. That's what I see a lot of issues. And you know what the other cool thing that- Craig Hanley said yesterday, Dr. Hanley, my, my new 
found love. Um, <laughs> he said, um, Dr. Hanley, if by any chance you're listening at all, will you please come on to the podcast? Please, please, please. I asked Casey to ask you yesterday and she said it wasn't the right time. So if you're listening <laughs> or someone who happens to be in near um, relation to Dr. Hanley or anyone wants to send this exact part of the podcast over, please come on. You're so dramatic. You're really cool. Do you know that? <laughs> I'm so dramatic. <laughs> you like never even listened to him. You're like, um, anyways, he said it's not like the functional analysis. It's, it's actually not to find the function of the behavior. It's so that we can turn the behavior on and off. We want to yes. find the behavior, right? We want to be able to teach the client that their behavior has power, right? So when they engage in that behavior, we're going to give them what they want, right? That their behavior has power. Yes, we see you. We hear you. Gotcha. And that's the part of, if you cannot turn a behavior off, right? You're not sending anyone in to do a functional analysis with a 200 pound aggressive person. Yeah, you're not, so and you're not going to do any progress. It is, you need to be able to say reliably when he engages in aggression and I give him the iPad, he stops, whatever it may be. That's just an example, but turning the behavior on and off. Right. And he talks about when, so when behavior is escalating, right? So you see these precursors, it's escalating. Um, that behavior is operant, meaning that it is affected by consequences. So it can be um, affected, stopped. But when it's peaked, when they reach that emotional mm. stage five meltdown, it is now peaked to this emotional place that we actually cannot provide any like real treatment, right? They're in full meltdown mode full and it's not crisis. safe. Yeah, they're in yeah. full crisis. And co so. you know, your cognitive abilities at that state are, I mean, all of us in an emergency, in a crisis, our cognitive mm -hmm. abilities are not where they are normally, right? Yep. So yeah, he says, if you treat the whining, you treat the aggression, right? So say mm -hmm. the first thing is whining and you're treating it there, right? Okay, what do you need? Let's do it now. Versus, oh, let's just wait to see what he does next or next. It's like, they're going to escalate, right? They're telling you something. You need to let them know that their behavior has power. I love that line. Yeah, that piece of turning the behavior on and off, you know, we try to think of it a lot because, you know, if you can't turn it off, right, then you know that you haven't, you don't have all of the reinforcers. You don't have the full contingency because if that, if you're able to turn it off, you've delivered what that problem behavior was trying to access or remove. And um, it, especially with problem behavior, because so many of our kids are sort of outliers, right? They get sent to us after so many different places have said, I don't understand this kid. I can't figure it out. I can't get rid of their problem behavior. We've done all of the stuff that we normally do and we cannot figure it out they no longer can attend the school. And that's when they get sent to a non-public school or a enhanced ratio adult program. And so for us, we really have to consider that. Like if we can't turn the behavior off, we haven't figured it out yet. I mean, right. and there are times where years, we're spending years trying to figure it out. You know, we just never stop trying to figure it out until we do. Um, and, and it's so... There's just something about kids with problem behavior. These, these are just my. People, I love you know? kids with problem. Those are my favorite. Like right? I and that that reinforcer of for yourself when you are the one oh, to figure yeah. that out. It's like it's, it's so satisfying. It's better than watching like a murder mystery and figuring out who it was before the scene because you're like, I get to play detective here and yeah. someone that's everyone else was like, oh, we can't do anything for this kid at this point. We just need to make like yes. medicate them to the point that yes. they can't do anything. And it's like, dude. And also there's like, you know, some pragmatism there. And it's like, wait, or um, maybe I'm, I should say parsimony, like a simplest explanation as to why mm -hmm. someone is doing something, you know, when you're like, oh, well, we went into all these crazy deep details of this <laughs> and that. And it's like, oh, they just needed this, which I, I think is really cool. I've I mean, totally it's not always there. that simple, but it's, it's so rewarding. Yeah. It's so rewarding. And to see, I mean, especially the family who's just been like in crisis and, you know, living, but you see families just kind of held hostage by problem behavior. Their whole lives have to revolve around it, you know, to try to avoid it, to try to manage it, to try to keep themselves safe. They can't go certain places and to see that change or to, to see that change in a student when they're like, Oh, all I have to do is, this other really easy behavior and I can get my same need met like and to see it change you see it change quickly that's what's so exciting is when you do really find the function of the behavior 
you teach a, a skill to access that exact same reinforcer, you see that behavior change so quickly and somebody go from whatever it may be, you know, pulling people's hair out to access something that they want, you know, you see that change quickly. And we've had a lot of really interesting experience with kids who are like, their behavior is maintained by access to rituals, right? Or you could say, um, I guess you could say it's it's escape from interruption of rituals too, right? Kind of like two sides of the same coin. And we've had a lot of good experience in teaching kids to just say, fix it, fix it, please. You know, and then we're like, oh, sure, you can fix it. And then we do the whole delay and denial situation. Once, once we've seen mastery of fix it, then we can teach delay and denial down the road. But I mean, you see people who are willing to do crazy things to access um, something they want to fix or something they want to adjust, um, you know, truly extreme behavior. I had a and client um, or, you know, an experience where same exact thing. Um, if something didn't go his way with an iPad or electronic, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, like Google wasn't working or YouTube wasn't bringing up what he wanted at that moment. Like he would literally just shatter everything, right? Like break everything. Mm. And we taught him again, uh, fix it, please fix it, please. And he'd bring it over. And you know, if, and if we couldn't fix it, right. So say it was something out of our control, like the internet was down or something. We were able to build up that tolerance by teaching him. Um, what would we say? Something like, uh, oh, like we're calling someone to fix it. So now he knows that we have to wait till someone comes to fix it. Say it was Comcast or it was, you know, anyone trying to fix Whoever it. Your provider oh, I love is. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so he would be like, fix idea. it, please, fix it, please. And he'd bring it right over and we'd be like, okay, we'd either fix it. My brother him. does that. Yeah, or we'd be like, oh, we got to call someone. You need to wait. And he'd be like, wait. He'd be like, he'd be like, waiting for the fix-it man, waiting for the fix-it man. <laughs> and we're like, that's great, man. Like, yeah, you're waiting. Awesome, man. And, the, you know, reinforce like that waiting, right? Because that's hard oh for gosh. people to wait. Yeah. Imagine us when the internet doesn't work. I'm like, I'm about to throw shit when the oh, internet doesn't yeah. work. I'm moving out. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No, that's a perfect, um, to be able to share those ideas. Like, that's exactly what I want this to be about is like, you know, I never even thought of that. Like adding in that piece of, oh, I got to call somebody. And we could do that with our clients now where we, like, we have a kid who loves to turn lights off and on, you know, and we could mm -hmm. say like, oh, you know what? I got to call the supervisor and ask if this is okay. So like, hold yeah. on a second. Let me get on the phone. I mean, there's so many. Because that's a natural idea, deal, right? Yeah. If you think about that in us, like, you don't just tell me to wait and then don't tell me what I'm waiting for. Or like, totally. It's like, oh, wait over there. It's like, for what? Oh, because you're going to do something to fix it, right? You're you're engaging in something that's going to eventually help me out. Yes, and that delay, you can expand and you, you can make it longer and longer and longer so that it's really, mm -hmm. you're, you're at a point where you can essentially deny somebody, but you're just saying later, you know, and they don't yep. know when later will be. It's an intermittent schedule, right? Because realistically, how many things are we truly saying no, never again? You know, right. it's, it's, it's rare. Yes, so exactly. That's super fascinating. I love it. I, um, I've had this like, um, amazing feeling that we're going to have you back on the show for more amazing sharing, talking, I would love that. a safe place for, um, you know, talking about, you know, whether it's, um, collaborating and talking about you know, how are we effectively treating problem behavior? How are we doing, you know, good work, right? Keeping the good work is what we yes. want everyone to do. I'm sure everyone's going to appreciate this episode. If you're driving in your car and you're like, oh my gosh, I have no idea what to do with this student. I hope we can be some inspiration that maybe you um, need to look outside of the box, dig a little deeper, find Definitely. that client's motivation because they have a fire inside of them that we need to figure out. So yes, and I want to encourage everyone, you know, don't be afraid to seek out experience with problem behavior. You know, if you are either an RBT or you're working in a school or um, you're in your, your supervision process to become a BCBA or whatever it may be, really take an active role in finding experience with running functional analyses, with working with kids with problem behavior. You know, don't be afraid of that population. It's, it's such a rewarding, fulfilling thing. And um, I'm so, I'm so, so, so humbled every single day by the kids that I work with and the challenges that um, they face and they kind of present, you know, when, when they come to us. And I'm, and I'm so honored to work with a team that really like gets it and fights hard, not only for these kids, but to make the world better 
and more inclusive for kids who experience and deal with problem behavior, right? Like we want the world to see them too. That's, that's the most important thing. Catherine, you're great. And I love your story and that you work for an amazing company and Terry Incorporated, they need to do some more work out here on the East Coast. I that know, right? Thank we you very much. <laughs> Thank you. are such a great place that you learned so much and you're happy. It's I really so great much to hear. Here. I learned how to, the most important thing, like over more so than my behavioral experience there, like obviously I learned that, but I learned how to treat people and I learned how to interact with people with special needs, with autism, with developmental disabilities. That is huge. You know, mm-hmm. not treating people like they have a disability, essentially, right. you know, seeing I think them for who they are. It's not the disability. Them for who they are and appreciating them. And, and let me give you guys some positive reinforcement real quick, because my whole team, you know, teachers, behavior specialists, behavior analysts, our education coordinator, my mentors, you know, they're all out there listening to you and you are presenting behavior analysis in a way that makes people feel included. And that is so important. You know, behavior analysis is for everybody, right? That's that's exactly what you guys are sharing and doing. So, and you know, now that that's so incredibly sweet of you to say, and like, we don't really, we didn't really realize the reach that we had and we owe it to everyone like to keep bringing episodes that are disseminating ABA correctly that are yes. disseminating ABA using evidence-based research and, um, but also keeping it real raw and relatable so that people listening Absolutely. are like, we've heard, heard all the time, like, I feel so alone. And then I listen and I know that I'm not alone. And so thank you so much, Catherine, for those thank words. You. That is so, so sweet. So much. I love Means that. Yeah. So, much. so yeah. thank you for coming on and, um, we'll have you back on and we have sure. some ideas for you. We want to talk to you about. So yes, yes. And anybody please reach out, you know, um, email Follow me. Follow this or... chick. Yeah, go follow me on Instagram and message me. We'll put it in the show notes for sure. Amazing. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. As always, love you. Mean it. Hey, guys, it's Liat. And Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who helped us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides a complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 